This week on Life and Faith. There's a tiny little racist person inside each one of us. And so I'm not saying Australia's perfect, but I've lived in four countries and Australia's by far the one I've experienced the least racism in. I found it can be really easy to seek after the things that make me comfortable and content and resist the things that are difficult. How are you going to deal with that? Very few things are automated, which was a shocking and counterintuitive finding for many people. That's a sadness in itself. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Justine Toe. And today we're talking about race and the experience of racial discrimination as we think about what a challenge that still is for our country. And we're doing this right now because this week marks 60 years since Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King ascended the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., and uttered some now immortal words. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. These are such vivid words, aren't they, Justine? And some of our listeners will know that we featured this speech and MLK's wider legacy in our documentary, For the Love of God, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined. Now, a segment on MLK and his ethic of nonviolence is one of the better episodes of Christian history. They weren't all great. Yeah, one week don't need to be embarrassed too much about. Yeah, <laughs> That's right. 250,000 people had turned up to that march on Washington, which was a campaign for civil rights and economic rights for African-Americans. And it was a real high point of that movement. Yes. And of course, the speech itself drew deeply from the Bible, as Simon, you go on to say in the documentary. Littered through the speech were allusions to Shakespeare, famous folk songs, the Declaration of Independence, and especially the Bible. Have a listen to this. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low. That's straight out of the book of Isaiah. What about this from the prophet Amos? We will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. King wasn't just a great orator. His whole approach to the battle for civil rights was shaped by his faith and his understanding of the profound ethic of love at its centre. Martin Luther King was able to apply the Christian notion of love and connect it to the Gandhian method of nonviolent resistance in a very powerful way. The idea that you can resist a system but still love individuals and treat them with respect and honor. The idea that evil must be resisted, it should never be normalized. And the idea that mass uh, nonviolent action can be a force for powerful change is a set of principles and a message that I think will endure the, the test of time. That was American political scientist Maria J. Stephan, the co-author of Why Civil Resistance Works, The Strategic Logic of Nonviolent Conflict. And you can watch the rest of that clip on our website. We'll link to it on the show notes. Now, Justin, our colleague, Max, Max Jaganathan, has written a piece reflecting on the 60 years since MLK's speech. 
as well as broader questions of race relations, and especially in the context of this year's uh, referendum on the voice to parliament. So Max and his family have had personal experience of brutal racial discrimination, as you'll hear in this episode. Now, Max is a Sri Lankan Tamil whose family came to Australia as refugees. So he has a unique perspective on this to contribute to the discussion. Looking yeah. Looking forward to that. Yeah, he really, he really does. I caught up with Max to quiz him further about the piece that he wrote, including the fact that this July marks 40 years since an event I'd never heard about, the Black July riots. Yeah, the Black July riots happened in Sri Lanka in 1983, and they're, for understandable reasons, not very well known. But effectively, they were one of the real boiling points of Sri Lanka's terrible civil war that spanned over many decades. But in Black July, the government of Sri Lanka effectively sanctioned and enabled and orchestrated racial riots against Sri Lanka's minority Tamil population, which led to the terrorising, the torture and the murder of thousands of Tamils all over Sri Lanka and the destruction of their property and the displacement of them from their homes. Now, you've um, summarised that event in quite kind of like historical terms, but you yourself and your family have personal experience of these riots. Yeah, so I'm a Sri Lankan Tamil and my family was tragically caught up right in the middle of that in Colombo. We were living at the time. I was only a few months old, but my parents and I were living just a few kilometres out of Colombo's downtown central business district. And one of these paramilitary gangs that were sanctioned by the governments and had been given electoral roles and addresses and the details of where wow. the Tamils lived. Gosh. Yeah, they came uh, knocking. Um, my dad grabbed me. I was just a little baby. He ran into the bathroom, which was a separate building, kind of an outhouse in the backyard, and locked a tiny little latch. They came in, they yelled at my mum asking, where are the men? They'd kind of been given instructions and their mission was to find and kill all Tamil boys and men. They heard my crying, um, oh, wow. terrifyingly enough, and I was just a few months old and didn't know any better. So I was crying, my dad was kind of holding my mouth to try and block the noise, but they heard me and so they came out the back and then they just kind of banged away at this old door. Um, really testing this tiny little latch. And both my parents were praying. My mum was in the house. My dad was there with me. And somehow this tiny little latch held. And we, long story short, we managed to get on a cargo ship, which was taking Tamils up to the northern peninsula of Sri Lanka to a region called Jaffna, where we were a little bit safer. And then from there, Another long story short, we wound up getting a second chance in Australia. And so we were international humanitarian refugees given uh, a pathway and a passage to Australia where we arrived sometime later to start a new life here. And here we are. That's a lot to hear. In <laughs> um, I have so many questions. Had your family experienced kind of ongoing harassment before that time? Yeah. And obviously I wasn't there, so it's just from stories that I've heard. But it had been sticky and messy for Tamils in Sri Lanka for some time pretty much on some level since Sri Lanka gained its independence, you know, around 30 years earlier. Tamils are a minority in Sri Lanka. The Sinhalese ethnic group are the majority. And so Tamils had been struggling with all kinds of systematic discrimination, university quotas that were angled against us. Sinhalese was legislated at one point as the national language. Mm. And so that kind of blocked us out of public service and social service jobs, made it harder to run for parliament, made it harder for kids to do well in school. Uh, There were even reports, and I don't know about this, I'd like to think that these are not true, but there are several reports from a lot of sources that incorrect textbooks were printed and sent to Tamil regions. Oh, so wow. Tamils were actually the... taught things that were yeah. you know, incorrect. It was effectively 
kind of a social and economic engineering project that was deeply, deeply racist. Yeah, and it's very obviously racist as well. Very obviously, obviously racist. Yeah. You've, as you said, that you've heard some stories from your family. Has has your family since reflected on those experiences now living in Australia, in a different country, different kind of everything, really? Yeah, well, obviously things just couldn't be any different in the most fundamental ways. And I find it hard to really believe that anyone's thoroughly and entirely racist. I mean, I know there are people that that is kind of an operating principle, but I think that's a a very rare exception. I think what the reality is, is more often than not, there's a tiny little racist person inside each one of us. And so I'm not saying Australia's perfect, but I've lived in four countries and Australia's by far the one I've experienced the least racism in, certainly the least Uh, if not no systematic racism in that kind of structural, entrenched kind of way. That is not to say that Australia doesn't have huge challenges in terms Mm. of race relations, but us being here and me growing up here and my parents telling the stories of what they went through, not just that Black July, but in the decades that preceded it, and even seeing the continued deterioration of Sri Lanka in the context of race relations since then, We're very blessed and very grateful and very fortunate to be here. And so Australia has got its challenges and got its problems. And and I've experienced racism in Australia too, but it's nothing like it was there. That was racism, I'd like to say, at its worst. I'm sure it's been worse in, in history, but, you know, almost at its worst. Let's talk about Australia and race. You probably agree with me that this is quite a difficult conversation to have. Right. I just read recently that... Non-white journalists, especially Indigenous journalists, yes. get a huge amount of racist trolling. Yes. And also Stan Grant taking a leave of absence from the ABC, sparked by the reaction to his commentary at King Charles's coronation. Yes. How have you experienced racism in Australia? Keeping in mind that, as you said, it's the least racist country um, you've that lived I've, in. That I've lived in. Yeah. Yeah. The challenge with racism, I think, when you think in the context of a society is that first you've got to get it out of your laws and then ideally at the same time or following through from that, you've got to get it out of your hearts and your minds. And in Australia, what's clear is, thankfully, at least for now, we're amongst the first generations where racism has been taken out of our laws in the context of regulating and legislating against racial discrimination and racial prejudice. But the battle for hearts and minds goes on. I think it goes on in, in every society. The two categories of racism that I've experienced growing up in Australia, and as you said, thankfully, they haven't been huge and they haven't been particularly consequential for me beyond certain events and certain experiences, is that people are firstly motivated when I have experienced racism by an inferiority complex and secondly by a superiority complex. And it's usually one or the other. Most of the racism I've experienced are people thinking that they're better than me because of their race. And so there's a talking down, there's a prejudice that kind of comes from on high, uh, a superiority, a supremacy that comes from having non-dark skin, if you like. But then there's another kind of racism where people are genuinely scrambling because they're worried that on some level, me and people like me or people that have come into the country more recently are going to take over. Take their place. Take their place, Mm. take their jobs, take their university places. And while they're both morally unacceptable in my view, I find that I can at least sympathize with the second one because I think all people are struggling to keep up in society. We all have understandable pressures on us, social, cultural, economic, pressures on our time, expectations for ourselves and our kids trying to make the bank accounts add up and so forth. And so any threat to that, uh, whether it's a people group or a traffic jam or a schedule, 
is going to be unsettling and disturbing. And I think sometimes that comes out as racism too. And so those are the two ways I've experienced it. Yeah. When you talk, when you say that, I, I wonder if some people listening are like, well, how can you tell? And when I've been on the receiving end of that second kind of racism where mm. me as a non-white person is something of a threat, which is kind of hilarious because I'm this small Asian woman. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> but even just the look on someone's face can make it very clear that you're not one of us and I don't know what to expect from you, but I don't think that I like you very much. And then it was that sense of, oh, you think I'm a completely different kind of person from you. Right. 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 It's a subtle thing, but it's very recognisable, isn't it? It's subtle and recognisable. And if you don't experience it directly like you and I have on occasion, it's impossible to even begin to understand that it's even out there. And so that's why you get a lot of these nonsensical ideas that, well, racism's gone. There's no racism left in our laws. So we just all need to suck it up and, mm. and get on with it and, and move forward, which is, you know, there there is some thread of truth in that, but it's overly simplistic if you haven't actually, you know, experienced what you and I have experienced from time to time. And so that's why I think a big part of the not so much the solution, but the way that Australia as a society needs to approach this is that we need to try and get to a place both in how we get along with others, how we organise ourselves socially, how we think about each other culturally, where we have a country and we are building a society proactively where in future generations people can take a look at people like you and people like me and just see an Australian. And that doesn't mean we have to be blind to colour. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about a, that. That's an equally, I don't like that either. No, that's an equally nonsensical thing. Uh, oh, I'm colour blind. Yes. I, don't, I don't see race. Yeah, well, well, it's like, well, you probably don't see the disadvantages <laughs> associated with that as well, Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. And also there's a lot about me that make me who I am. Yeah. Race is just one thing. I don't want you to just be blind to whatever you choose to be blind to. Mm. Like that's being a dark-skinned guy is part of who I am too. So I think it's just about how we define an Australian and our Australianness, And it's important and sometimes unpopular for someone that looks like me to say this amongst minorities, but racial minorities in Australia have a responsibility too. We shouldn't have to work any harder than a racial majority to be Australian, but I think we should have to work at least equally hard. Like we're all Australian and we're all called to be part of this team. And so weaponizing race, I think, is equally problematic when racial minorities do it. That doesn't help. We're all trying to build something here together. And if we come from a posture of victimhood, I think that's equally problematic as coming from a posture of superiority from a racial majority. Can you retell me what you meant by racial minorities have a role to play as well? Like, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So I think the the metric of success in modern race relations in advanced industrial countries like Australia, free countries that are having a go at this project of cosmopolitan multiculturalism, multiculturalism yeah. which is not an easy thing. And, and not that many countries have had a decent crack. Mm. So we should recognise the significance and the importance and the gravity of the task that we're all in on. In embracing that challenge, everyone has a role to play and racial minorities have to step outside of an exclusive victim frame, and racial majorities have to step outside of an exclusive, let's just forget about the past and move forward because our laws are not racist frame. Mm. Yeah. And so we all have a role to play. Yeah. And regardless of the responsibility for what has happened up until now, and I think that is a distributed responsibility too, we all have to take responsibility in what happens going forward. And that's where I think the marker and the metric needs to be in Australia where we just look at each other and people can look at people like you and me and see an Australian. And that doesn't mean we're not going to 
stop getting the questions like, well, where are you from? Where are you from? Where are you from? Uh, whereas really what people are asking is, well, why do you look like that? Um, and they're not, ra- they're not necessarily racist, but for my kids to be able to say, oh, I'm from Australia and to not get a follow-up interrogation. Mm. That's not the only metric, but I think that'd be a helpful metric that this is what the average Australian looks like. Looks like you, looks like me, looks like any colleague we might have that's Anglo-Australian or not. And the marker of being Australian, the marker of Australianness, is not racially delineated. I think that's different to being colourblind. I think that's just recognising that we are both a mosaic and an alloy and we retain aspects of our diversity as a nation of Australia and an Australian society. But also at the same time, we are an alloy where everyone kind of pours in something of themselves to make something that's strong and unified and united. The thing about alloys is when you pour in, it gets stronger, but there is something of yourself that you do have to give to that. And you can't claim that your aspect of diversity is always shone through, you know, in the way that it used to be. We all give of ourselves when we're building multicultural societies. There's got to be sacrifice. There's got to be compromise. Sounds like I have a dream to me. <laughs> has Zachary your, is he five or six? He's six now. He's six. Has, has your six-year-old experienced racism? And how do you manage that experience for him? I don't think he has. I'd like to think he hasn't. I'm not aware of racism yet that he's experienced. Uh, one of the reasons we moved back to Australia, I'm happy to say, is because our kids are mixed-race kids. And I was just so hopeful and optimistic and confident that the Australian people, to speak very broadly and collectively, were up to the task Mm. of making them feel at home, uh, more so than any of the other countries that we had opportunities to live in. Uh, And so my my hope and prayer is that he hasn't. We don't think that he has yet, uh, or my daughters either, for that matter. But I suspect that he will do, being realistic. I did. I had a, a wonderful childhood and young adulthood in Australia and couldn't have asked for better, and I still experienced episodic racism. So I think it is still a reality. Uh, And when that happens, I'd like to think that we teach him and equip him with sufficient resilience and sensitivity and graciousness to be able to navigate through it, to build authentic relationships of trust, to show forgiveness, but not to be a doormat and to remember that uh, he has to take his place, as all Australians do, in this long line of nation building and society building that we're all doing. And race is a part of that, whether we like it or not. You're listening to Life and Faith and we're marking the 60th anniversary of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech with a conversation with our colleague Max Jagannathan. So Australia is not without its own issues on race relations, but according to Max, it's the least racist country he's lived in. So, Justine, Good on us. that's something. <laughs> By the way, if you're interested, we also asked Max what other countries he's lived in, Sri Lanka, Singapore, and England, which may or may not challenge your ideas about what it means to be racist. The conversation now turns to the big issue on race in Australia at the moment, the voice. Australia, of course, is confronting its own moment of, I guess you could call it a kind of nation building as well. Yeah, right? we are. Yeah. This discussion over whether to include a voice in the constitution, a right. voice for Aboriginal Australians. Now, you've written a couple of articles about the voice now, but let's talk mm. about the most recent one. Sure. You wrote an article responding to the claim that the voice is racist. And I presume this means that we don't make allowances for different genders in the constitution. Right. So why should we make special notice of the category of race? Right. 
But you make very clear in your article that you have no time for this kind of argument. Tell me why. Yeah, it's a crafty play on words and play on virtue signals that is quite frustrating, actually, but very clever. And it gets to the earlier point I was making about the need to tackle racism structurally and get race out of our laws. And that's what people who make this argument are getting at. They are saying, surely if part of eradicating racism is about getting it out of our laws, doesn't the voice and won't the voice put Put it back in, in, put racial division back in? Whereas the reality is when we say we want racism out of our laws, we want racial prejudice and racial discrimination and racial vilification. The capacity for people to single people out because of their race for the purpose of disadvantaging them and doing them harm. That's what we're talking about when we talk about getting racism out of our laws and our regulations structurally. So I think understanding that advantage and disadvantage can entrench in different ways. And one of the ways that disadvantage continues to entrench in Australia and many countries around the world is through race. It's not the only way, but it's one of the ways. And so acknowledging that and simultaneously acknowledging a connection that a particular racial group in our country has with the land that the rest of us just don't have ancestrally or in the context of our heritage, understanding those two things together and thinking of the voice as a, first of all, an element of symbolism in our constitution. Secondly, as a pathway to facilitate a particular process democratically and in terms of policy making. And thirdly, underpinning and seeking to speak into and actually affect change in the context of disadvantage is a lot of things and can be a lot of things good and bad, but it's not racist. It's mm. certainly not racist. When people come after a particular racial group to help them, I don't believe that's racist. If you come after a particular racial group to hurt them, that's racism. So for me, as someone that's experienced racism, prejudice is necessarily a part of the kind of racism that we want to get rid of is about. And in the absence of prejudice, if we're just trying to discern disadvantage and break disadvantage down to its first causes and its primary principles that drive it, then if race is one of those causes, to ignore that It's both ineffective in the context of tackling that disadvantage, and it's also playing semantics with the concept of racism itself. But it's also true, isn't it, that as someone who's experienced racism, to have people say, this would be racist, you're like, actually, no, it's not. Have you experienced racism before? This is nothing like what, you know, what racism feels like. Yeah, I think that's fair, a fair question. And it's, it's also fair, I think, for them to make that suggestion or make that contribution to the public debate. But then it's up to people, I think, who have disproportionately experienced racism in this country to actually speak up and say, look, we understand what you're worried about, whether that's an authentic worry or whether it's a semantic strategy. Either way, we can assure you there's a lot of good reasons to vote yes or no on this voice, but racism is not one of those reasons. We have experienced racism We don't believe that this is racist. And this is borne out, I think, in the reality that polling for the last 12 months right up until now shows that people from non-English speaking backgrounds like myself in Australia broadly support the voice, broadly support the voice. Now, if it was intrinsically racist or racist in any kind of structural or systematic way... They wouldn't go near it. You wouldn't see that. Mm. You wouldn't see that from so many racial minority groups across the country. Uh, And so there remains a number of reasons for and against the voice, and we should have that argument, and we should have that debate in a respectful and gracious way. But pivoting to racism and kind of using it as a virtue signal to try and shut something down that is about discerning racial disadvantage, I think is both misleading and it contaminates the public debate. 
Now, earlier you said a, a nation state trying to grapple with this needs to eradicate racism from laws and then eradicate racism from our hearts and our minds. So let's talk about hearts because mm. your earlier um, article on The Voice jumped off from Noel Pearson's claim that we are a much unloved people. Yeah. So talk to me about the place of love in this discussion. And I imagine it's not this kind of sentimental, oh, you know, we love you, be be part of us. But there's a hard edge to that kind of love too. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, I'm not an Indigenous Australian, but when I heard Noel Pearson say those words that we, he's speaking for Indigenous Australians, we are a much unloved people. As an Australian, that just broke my heart. And for all Australians that are non-Indigenous, that should at the very least provoke thoughts. That that should be a heartbreaking thing. I have had an amazing experience growing up in this country, and I've felt loved, for want of a better term, by Australia, her people, her culture, the four cities I've lived in here. And your friend who took the punch for you when those guys were racist to you. Correct. I've had, <laughs> I've had Anglo-Australians, white Australian friends, you know, that have stood up for me when I've been attacked racially. I've had one, as you said, literally that took a punch for me. And that for me symbolizes love. That's love in action. Now, yes, I've experienced some racism too, but overwhelmingly, my family and I have felt loved by this country. It doesn't sit right that we have had that experience and someone like Noel Pearson, and he doesn't claim to speak for every single Indigenous Australian, but even thematically and in the abstract to say we are a much unloved people and for us all to know instinctively that that does hold truth. We get what he's trying to say, Mm. even if we're non-Indigenous, that doesn't sit right. Now, obviously, there are Indigenous Australians that have felt loved by their country. They've done great things and they would perhaps disagree with Noel. And I'm sure there are many refugees and immigrants that would disagree with me that have had very difficult Mm. um, experiences here. But for me to have had the experience I've had and for there to be Indigenous Australians not to have had that experience, or at least not to have, on the balance of probabilities, had a better crack at having that experience, is problematic. And so that's why we clearly still have work to do in our hearts and minds. And I think that's the frame through which we should come at this. What kind of resources would your family's Christian faith have to play here? I mean, Martin Luther King drew from his Christian faith to motivate his fight for justice, yes, but also to drive his ethic of nonviolence as well. There was a real refusal to engage in those kinds of tactics. Yes. So he drew very deeply from his Christian faith. Yes. How do you do that? Enormously. And I don't know that I would be able to even articulate a vision for where I think we should be going or even make sense of the past, my past, let alone Australia's past, without my Christian faith and without those ideals of justice and love and graciousness. Not for a second because that's what I'm invariably about, but it's what I'm called to and what my faith models for me and what Jesus Christ models for me in such a powerful way. And one example, in the Bible, there's this line that says that When you throw righteousness to the ground, your calls for justice turn bitter. And that's been quite powerful and formative for me because when you are oppressed or attacked or at the receiving end of racial prejudice, it's easy to get bitter and it's easy to get angry. And I should say anger is an important part of the process sometimes. It's what gets the moral engine into motion. But it's not enough on its own. And if bitterness is the main thing that kind of personifies our approach when we're fighting racial prejudice and racism, uh, regardless of whether we're in the racial majority or minority. When we want racial justice, it has to be done from a place of restoration and redemption. It can't come from a place of bitterness. If we're more angry 
about what's happened in the past than we are hopeful about what we can build together in the future, then we're coming off the wrong foot, if you like, in the run-up. And that's why later in that verse, there are those beautiful words that Martin Luther King has popularized for everyone, where the Bible goes on to say, let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a mighty stream. And a big part of righteousness for the Christian is being right with God, but for the Christian also, and for all of us, is being right with one another. And really, that's what racial justice is about. It's about being on the right terms with our fellow brothers and sisters of all races. And that really points to the final fundamental of my faith, which fuels the whole thing, which is the equal and intrinsic dignity of all people. I don't know, Max, I'm hearing another Martin Luther King in you, right? Because what does he say? One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. This is a vision of the beloved community. Sounds like you are onto that as well. I'm very much onto it. I didn't invent it myself and neither did Dr. King. He got it out of his Bible. I got it out of mine, but it still forms the basis of my hope and my optimism and my excitement about being an Australian and regardless of what happens in this referendum, what we can all build together. You've been listening to Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart and Justine Toe. Thanks to Max for such a rich conversation on race and one that's quite hopeful, even though you could understand if, given his family's experiences, he was actually rather bitter about everything. I will post links to Max's articles on the show notes. And thanks also to Alan Douthwaite, our ever-hopeful producer. If you've enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with others and also supporting the work of CPX. You can email feedback to podcast at publicchristianity.org. Next week. When you knock on the door of the neighbor of a serial killer that you're now taking to jail, that neighbor is likely to say, oh, I'm so glad you're taking that guy to jail. That guy's crazy. I mean, it smells bad over there all the time. There's all kinds of weird noises over there. He's a weirdo to begin with. But then when you take someone to jail for my kinds of cases and you knock on the neighbor's door and tell them, yeah, I'm taking your neighbor to jail for this case from 30 years ago, they'll typically say, oh, there's no way. No, I've done that guy for 30 years. He's a great guy.